Well, good morning, everybody. I'll tell you, this is one of the most uh, stressful Sundays for being in front because not only am I up here just constantly worried about kicking one of these things over, now I also got to worry about not tripping over this thing. Make sure we got the uh, the balance. We good? We good? I got the uh, memo from those of all those who wrote in uh, on the solid colored shirt to try not to clash, um, and it is doing all it can do. I apologize for the rest of this. That just. <laughs> by nature clashes. Um, nothing I can do about that. If you have any complaints, you can email me at cleg at southspring.org. <laughs> Let me know all about it. As, um, uh, as you've already see, seen this morning, or we've already experienced by lighting of the Hope Campbell, candle, we're going to uh, get an opportunity to talk uh, or a conversation about hope. And when I was thinking about hope, um, you know, truthfully, I'm, I'm probably more of the disposition of somewhere in the middle of that um, optimist, you know, pessimist. I'm not really a pessimist. I'm not really the like, oh, wow, look, there's half a glass of water. Like, but I'm kind of like, yeah, there's half a glass of water. That's good. And then, yeah, it's half empty. I mean, it could be worse, it could be empty. But generally, I think I always just have this disposition of, well, well, things will just kind of generally work out. Things will kind of work out all in the end, um, especially when it comes to my plans or my endeavors. Um, but one of the times that I remember that uh, vastly not going to plan, um, not happening the way I thought, and really seeing then how quickly um, my hope uh, was lost, how quick I went to a place of, of hopelessness, um, was many years ago when uh, a couple buddies of mine, I invited them down uh, to Texas to, to go on a, uh, um, a kind of a, a, a first look at a canoe trip that I was wanting to take a group of guys that I was um, discipling down at the end of the discipleship program. Um, but instead of taking them first off, first off I wanted to go and kind of uh, scout it out um, with a couple of my buddies. And, uh, and it was down on the Neches River. We had found a place that further south, um, down by Beaumont and Silsby. There's like a um, professional outfitter. You can go, you can rent from him. But I was like, why well, drive all the way down there? I was like, I mean, the Neches comes right out of Palestine. Surely there's a place more northern that we wouldn't have to drive so far. And we had called down and I had asked that guide and he was trying everything he could do to try try to convince us not to go. He was like, I mean, it is so remote. It is so hard. It is pretty dangerous. Like there's not much access. If you get in trouble, um, all the different things he was trying to convince us to not go. We're like, yeah, yeah. Tell me more. Okay. This sounds good. Okay. This sounds good. And he was selling us on it. Um, and so this is, this of course is a, a much, much longer story. And I could tell the whole thing. We could have a lot of laughs, but then we'd only have about five minutes to consider scripture. So the very abbreviated version uh, came from uh, the first instance of us actually getting into the river and putting in was uh, much, much later, um, actually about eight hours later than we wanted to that first day. Um, and so we're already in a panic because we had a deadline um, because we were putting in Thursday. We needed to be out Saturday morning because the two guys I invited down with me, um, both were youth pastors and were preaching that next Sunday. And so it's like we had a deadline to hit. So we're already late. And so we're immediately thinking, okay, okay let's just, for an hour, let's just push in, let's go as hard as we can, um, and, and let's really just see, okay, after an hour of pushing, how far did we get, and then we can kind of gauge from there the rest of the time that we need to spend on the river. And so we push, we push hard for an hour and then we stop. And then it's like at the normal place, it was like, okay, how far have we gotten? And where we would have normally pulled out the maps that we printed of the trail the night before, we did not print out any maps because Mike, one of my friends, had a brand new iPhone with GPS. And so we're like, oh, we don't need these maps. We can follow everything along this. And this, this trail that we were on um, is actually one of the only natural canoe loops in Texas because it goes into this swamp and you have just enough current to go back north. It's a north 
north to south, you have just enough current to go back north that you can loop back down south. And it's this constant labyrinth, like maze of these fingers offshooting that would go for a long way and then they would eventually die. And so we're thinking, great, now we're gonna, we're gonna, we need to check how far we got, we need to make sure we're on course and make sure we can go the rest of the way. Now, as many of y'all are smirking at me when I told you we threw away the maps and we were relying on an iPhone, what did we see when we pulled up the iPhone with absolutely no service at all anywhere to be found? A blue dot with nothing around it, right? Nothing to tell us what we were doing. And so we already went into uh, a little bit of a panic um, and we're, we're unsure of what, what the rest of this was going to look like. Um, but there was nothing we could do. We just had to push on. And so we kept pushing on and we pushed on and ran into down tree after down tree after down tree. Uh, we would get to forks in the road, and it, I mean in the river, and it literally would be like, maybe it's stronger this way, but we're not really sure, but let's just go on it anyways. I mean, we got pretty dire. When we lost that outside connection to our plan, the outside connection, the communication that would have told us where we go, when we lost that, um, it, the game, things came very uncertain for us. In fact, it got so bad, at one point, um, I climbed a, a tree um, because we were contemplating, do we just hike out of here? Because at some points, the highway, 69, was only like eight miles away, but at other points, it was like 35, because it's going straight, but the river's doing this. And so it was like, maybe we can see the highway, maybe we just need to give up. Um, we climbed way too high to be safe in this tree. And then what did we see um, when I got up there? I looked over and I saw about 100 yards this way, a river about identical in size to the one underneath me. And two more, about 100 and about 200 feet that way. Four identical looking passageways. We're like, again, we are lost. Um, we decided to continue pressing on. We decided to continue to make unwise decisions, um, including just for the sake of time and trying to get home uh, earlier, um, we, we decided not to stop to cook our meals. So instead, we had the little camper, propane camper, on our plastic fiberglass canoe <laughs> as we're cooking while we're going down trying to eat. I mean, it was, it was a, again, the amount of dis I mean, we started rationing our food. It got that bad. I mean, I don't know if that was really going to help us of like saving half of our tuna for an extra day was really going to mean anything. But we were truly just hopeless. We didn't have any cell phone service. We couldn't call our wives, let them know that we we're safe. We couldn't call the churches, let them know maybe we won't, they won't be there. I mean, all the different things. It was amazing how, again, loss of communication with this outside source immediately brought us to a place of hopelessness. And I say all that um, really to finish, by the way, we did get out. Surprise ending. Um, we, were, we were about 12 hours late pulling out on Saturday, um, which meant Mike had to drive all the way back up to, to uh, Little Rock, um, uh, sleep for shower, sleep for about an hour, and then give a sermon that to this day, he's like, I don't know what I said. I don't know what. <laughs> Nobody booed, but I didn't have anything else. Um, and I say that again, kind of reminding, reminding myself of this picture of, again, we're going to consider this morning by where, when we're walking through these elements of this tabernacle, we're going to look at uh, a communication source, um, a, a sense that we have hope of connectivity um, that's going to be present in the uh, uh, altar of incense that we're going to consider, um, and really just the reminder of uh, how hopeless it would be if we didn't have that point of connection. Uh, so with that, um, kind of reviewing where we are, we've been looking through these elements of the ta uh, tabernacle as a typography or as a symbolism, um, a lot of elements pointing towards uh, the Messiah, towards Jesus, having symbolism that we can relate to ourselves as we look at his uh, advent, his first coming and his second advent, hopefully his coming again, um, how even in his first coming, this was the plan all along leading up to it. There's nothing new um, by his first coming. And that same hope that we had building up to there is the same one we have looking forward to him uh, coming back um, with us to get us and to bring us to his ultimate kingdom.
Now, the first week, again, um, we, we talked about the, uh, the uh, sense of hope. We lit, lit the, I'm sorry, the first week we, sit, we talked about peace, um, and we, we lit the peace candle, and we were, te- we were talking about um, really the menorah, uh, the candelabra, the light um, that was present, and how really with the presence of the light through the nar- darkness, how much peace we can have. And in the same way, we saw that Jesus is the light. He's the ultimate fulfillment of this. In heaven, there will be no need for a light source. He will be the one. Jesus is the light. Um, and we get to partake in that. In the second week, we considered joy, um, and really through uh, the idea of considering um, how we can find joy through the provision of the showbread. Um, and we talked about the table of the showbread, and Chris did a great job um, uh, talking about that, and then making the connection of Jesus is the bread. He says it's the bread of life, and we can uh, uh, consume him and have eternal life, because he's the one that ultimately provides for us. And so today, we're going to be celebrating hope again, and we're going to be considering the altar of incense. Uh, and it's not so one-on-one. Um, we were out there, Jesus is the smoke, there's no Bible verse, uh, so if you puff on me, you'll have eternal life. It's not that quite one-on-one with the uh, uh, altar of incense, but there is some connection, so bear with me, and we're going to consider it together, and then be able to see Messiah in the altar. Uh, to do so, we're going to read the description of the altar, which is found in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV version, uh, if you want to open up your Bibles or turn them on and navigate there. Uh, it's also going to be on the screen uh, behind me. And out of reverency for God's words, I'm going to invite you to stand. And as we read this together, and as I read it over you, um, I want you to think, those especially who've been here the past couple of weeks, listen for the familiar language. There's going to be very familiar language in how it's described. There's going to be very similar elements to this that we've already run into. And so just in the back of your brain, um, as we're reading this together, think about all that uh, we've already considered so far, um, because we'll tie in a lot of those things again. In Exodus 30, verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it out of acacia wood. A cubic shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side and its horns. You shall make a molding of gold around it and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides, you shall make them and they shall be holders for the poles of which to carry. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put in front of the veil that is above, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement for on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make the atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The very words of God. You can be seated. So like I said, we've already run into some, uh, we've already run into some familiar language and some f- familiar descriptions of what this looks like. Some of the descriptions that run into, uh, a lot of them run into what we just even considered last week um, when we were talking about the table of showbread, right? Um, as Chris explained to us, this similarly is also one that's not made of pure gold like the menorah, but this is a mixture of an internal structure of acacia wood and an external lining of gold. Uh, Chris talked about, well, the symbolism of uh, humanity represented by the wood and deity represented 
represented by the gold, the, the intermixing of those two. Um, we also, uh, this in t- uh, altar of incense has a molding of gold around it, a crown of gold. We ran into that also with the showbread. And Chris talked about how uh, the divinity or the kingship um, of, the thor- of the throne is represented there. And then similarly, we, had, we run into, we have two rings on either side with poles to carry it. Um, God was not nailed down, um, but he was present with Israel. And this was the, um, the, the, the nature of the tabernacle being able to be moved. And so again, some of the same things that we talked about last time, we're talking about this time. And one of the other things I wanted to consider was um, that we, you know, briefly mentioned, but to get a little bit of a picture of it is that this probably isn't, again, all that impressive of an altar. Because so many times when I think of like altars, especially in the front of worship, or when I think about like um, visiting like old cathedrals or things, you know, I think of the altar as like all the candles spread out, the big ornate, um, you know, fixture that's all above it. And even sometimes, you know, stairs to get up to different levels so that the priest moves and, and uh, can acknowledge and get to all the different areas and perform, perform the rituals and rites. Uh, there, but this again is not that. We shouldn't be picturing this big, elaborate thing. Um, we really should just be picturing a small piece of furniture. Um, again, thinking about a furniture that would need to fit into a, a tent that is no bigger than the width of this entire stage, uh, and really as an as an example for us to kind of even get the idea of the dimension. Um, this. This is really probably what we should be thinking about as far as size and as far as representation uh, of the altar. This is one cubit, about 18 inches, by one cubit, 18 inches, and 36 uh, inches tall. And so it's, uh, uh, it's at least my best attempt at, it's not a good attempt, but it was the best attempt of a quick uh, a visualization of at least the, the size. Um, and in fact, it's a lot better than it was supposed to be because when I originally brought it up here, I just had the cardboard box. And Chris was like, come on, man, you can at least make it gold. You're right, I can make it gold. And <laughs> ran over to children's ministry, wrapped it real quick. Uh, and then now here we have it. But to get uh, some other pictures of what this would actually look like with the ornate um, pictures on it, because again, I don't have the rings, I don't have the horns, I don't have the rim around it. Here's a cartoon drawing of one. Um, here's another one that's a, a picture of an actual replica of one. Um, we'll come to the back to the blood on the horns. You can see those there, picture as well. Um, and then here's, here's a model that made me feel a lot better about my model. I was like, at least, uh, at least, come on, I can do a little bit better by that. Um, but I do want to talk uh, briefly about these horns, because the horns also remind us of another uh, altar that's a part of the tabernacle worship. It's just not one that we've considered before. Um, this is the altar of sacrifice that would be outside um, the tent that the sacrificial system was based upon, and all the burnt offerings were lifted up. Because that altar, these are the only two altars in there, that altar and this altar both have these four horns on either corner. And so what is... What is this idea of these horns? The Hebrew word here describing horns is simply karen, uh, and it most commonly refers to literally the horn of an animal. But to ancient cultures, the horns of animals uh, often communicate with it power, um, strength of their might. It was the power and the strength of the might of the animal that was represented in their horn. And so uh, oftentimes symbolism was used when it was describing people or nations to horns. They were describing their power. Um, this made sense when Moses blesses the tribes of Israel uh, in Genesis 33, I mean Deuteronomy 33, and of the house of Joseph, he specifically says, describes them as a firstborn bull. He has majesty and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. It'll be the power of which um, he has to subdue the enemies of the land as it goes on, as Moses continues to explain. 
The psalmist also talks about horns as the power of God's judgment. In Psalm 75, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Strength will be taken away from the wicked. Strength will be given to the righteous. Similarly, in Jeremiah, when when, uh, it talks of the destruction um, of Moab um, by God's people, it says that Moab's horn was cut off. Again, horns are the sense of power, of majesty, of kingship. Um, Daniel's vision of his beast includes uh, uh, 10 kings represented by 10 horns. Um, We run into Zechariah's visions um, where he talks about four horns um, being the four nations that are opposing and bringing God's judgment um, on God's people. And so I think one thing is we should not miss with this is in the symbolism that these horns are communicating power. But it's not just power and judgment. It's also the power of salvation, power of deliverance. Again, running into David, he records this in 2 Samuel uh, 22. You may recognize it. Um, It sounds very similar to a psalm that he wrote in Psalm 18. But from 2 Samuel, it says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Listen to how strong these words are. The strength, the power. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. This is similarly why when we run in First Kings, um, King Adonijah, who then is fearing Solomon and is fearing Solomon's uh, retribution against himself and is trying to proclaim salvation or mercy or reprieve from Solomon, he goes before the altar, kneels down and grabs onto the horns, declaring that these are the horns of power of salvation, communicating that and his fear of Solomon. And not to miss that this, of course, it's very easy for us to look at these horns and look at um, them being covered in blood for the atonement, for us to see Christ in it. Um, but scripture even is clearer than that. Doesn't make sure, make sure that we don't miss this connection to Jesus. Uh, specifically, again, the other, another Zechariah, this time uh, in the New Testament, John the Baptist's dad, when he pl- prophesies, he directly claims that it's clear that Jesus is this horn of salvation in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord of God. Uh, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And so this clearly is a messianic uh, symbol or typology that we shouldn't miss the God of our salvation in these horns. But then you may ask, well, then why, why four? <laughs> if, there's, if God's a horn of salvation, why do we have four horns of salvation? And of course, now commentators uh, start disagreeing a lot. They go into different symbolism, like the four colors probably in the tabernacle represent these qualities about Jesus. They do some of the similar things with the four different types of horns. Um, some go similarly to, like I said, of Jeremiah's uh, description of, of talking about the four horns being on the four corners, representing all of the earth, kind of the four corners of the earth, represented by these horns, meaning that Jesus Jesus' messianic picture is going to be good enough for all of the world um, one day, not just Israel. Uh, But again, this is where we can get lost um, by diving too much in and uh, and making too much out of the symbolism. Uh, Maybe we'll get to heaven one day and he'll be, oh no, it exactly, it means this trait, this trait, this trait. Maybe he'll be, no, it's the nations on all corners. Or maybe he's just like, I like horns. I don't know. I wanted you to put them on there. I thought it'd look cool. We'll find out when we ask him. But I did run into uh, one Jewish rabbi who wrote, uh, a Messianic rabbi who wrote of, these, of the other meaning 
uh, or interpretation of the word Hebrew word for horn. Because again, I said that it's most often translated as animal horns. Another usage of it is actually ray or beam, beam of light. This is actually the same word, this word translated horns that we're reading about here is translated uh, in Exodus 39 when talking about the rays of light coming off of Moses's face when he comes down Mount Sinai. And I thought that was an interesting picture. He, he commented more on tying in the four corners and the horns in their direction, pointing up to God, that it is the messianic figure, Christ, who is the power that takes, the only reason that is the incense is, able, incense is able to burn and rise up to heaven is because the power of God um, of his salvation is the one directing it, pointing it where it needs to go. Again, interesting symbolism. We'll never know. But we do know, one of the things we do know is we know that there's a very specific nature to this incense uh, and its offering. It's not just a willy-nilly type thing. It's very specific in how it's uh, supposed to be used and how it's supposed to be done. And there's very great procedures with it. Because again, we've ran into in verse nine, we already read, um, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. So one, we know it can be inappropriately done because apparently unauthorized incense is being forbidden. The second is it, uh, well, you may ask then, well, what is that unauthorized incense? Um, well, and we run into that in a further description that happens later in chapter 30 of Exodus. Verse 34 describes it. And I am not going to pronounce these correctly at all. Um, but this is, this is telling us what is this actually authorized? What is the only authorized version of incense appropriate to the Lord? The Lord says to Moses, take sweet spices, stockte and anica and galbanum and sweet spices with pure frankincense. Frankincense. I know that one. Frankincense. I can pronounce that one. Um, this is where we were joking of, of, uh, uh, of even, you know, our clear connection into the Advent when we're looking at these, at these stories, we may, of all these other ones that I don't know what they are or never knew what they were before doing it. Frankincense, I at least knew because we ran into that one. The wise men give this uh, to Jesus as a gift. Now with this, these incense, we know that there's a specific instruction. There's supposed to be equal parts of each of these four spices. Um, they're to make an incense blended like a perfumer. Um, they're supposed to season it with salt to represent it as pure and holy. There's some instructions about how it's to be distributed at the tent of meeting. Um, and, and then it's, it's, it's rightful holy place is presented. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to God. Whoever makes any like this to use his perfume shall be cut off from his people. And so first, again, reading through that, who um, did Mary, you know, upon getting some frankincense and the, and the wise men go, here, I brought you some perfume. And Mary looking at Joseph and being like, oh, no, that's the whole cut off part of his people. But that's not actually the case because, again, it's not just that frankincense is the scent mentioned here. We have two other, um, uh, two other forms of, of this this balmy, sappy um, material that would be collected from, from plants, essentially to gather the three of these, the, the stockte, the galbanum, and the frankincense, you would find um, the plant that produces it, you would be able to mar it um, from its sap, from its ooze, um, you would be able to boil it down and harden it. Um, the ancha, the one in the middle, is actually um, the scaled up uh, shell um, from a type of mussel that was in the area. And so you would, you would melt down, um, boil up um, all, of, all of these, this uh, sap um, or all this moisture from the plant. You'd add in um, the, the shavings from the mussel, uh, and then you would let it uh, basically settle and cool uh, and turn back into, um, 
this resin, this hard resin type material that then could be burned. And again, this incense uh, in equal parts was made with these clear instructions and was not made for anything else. This was supposed to be set apart. This was supposed to be holy. It had a purpose in worship and it wasn't supposed to be denied or done inappropriately. And I think we, of course, can see that rightly in our times of worship of how many times we're tempted to want to just worship in our ways when God has made clear, no, this is what true worship looks like. And it's not about how what you add to it. It's about how you align yourselves with me. And we see this again in this picture from the altar of incense. And again, to highlight its, its set-apart nature even further, we've already mentioned once a year it is to be cleansed with the blood of the atonement sacrifice. So the atonement sacrifice done once a year on behalf of all of Israel to forgive them of their sins. It was that blood that was taken and brought to this altar as well, from that altar to this altar, and, and cleansed um, uh, to represent the covering again, the atonement that these sins have been covered. This is covered up. Now right worship can pass through to God. And of course, how easy it is to see the symbolism, thinking of Jesus as our sacrificial covering through the shedding of his own blood. I think, again, we'd be amiss if we didn't see that. But I also like the notion that it's not only, not only that it's specifically set apart, but it's also that the altar of incense is constantly burning. Um, so we, we've run into where um, the menorah was lit, but it allowed to go out during the day. We've run into where sacrifices were given, but it wasn't always given, um, that there was time in between. But the, for this one, um, the altar of incense was supposed to be constantly burning. Aaron was supposed to prepare it in the morning to burn throughout the day, and in the evening, again, to burn throughout all the night. So it's very specific in its purpose. It's set apart, but it's also that it's constant. It represents a continual connection of worship between the Lord and his people. A constant, continually connection between God and his people. And we joked even too about this time, about this time of the service, maybe we'd have somebody behind the scenes start pumping in some incense into our air conditioning handler. So we'd all just like, wow, I can really relate. I smell it. Um, but truthfully, why we did not think, do in, in, go any further with that, um, because I'll confess to you, um, Chris has bought back frankincense before. We've, uh, we have it in our office. We've been in Israel and, and smelt it burning, burning. And I despise the smell. It's awful. I'm sorry if you enjoy it. I'm one of those reasons of like, you can put me in a closet with an open can of gasoline and two cycle engine oil and I'm fine. The moment frankincense is brought into the equation, I'm just like instant headache, turned off. We can't do it. So we won't do that um, this morning. But I do think that there's an appropriate, again, takeaway of considering this, this incense that's being burned, this altar of incense. Um, we've seen that it's continually burning, that it's constant connection between God and his people. We see that it's a powerful connection, the horns bringing that it's powerful connection between God and his people. Um, and we see that it's very specific and set apart um, for its purpose and for its communication. And so I think these are neat facts about the altar, but how do we move into a place of application or seeing again the symbolism here? Well, I think that... Um, to actually rightly understand the symbolism, we don't need to look as directly or small into these details, even though they're affirming of it. But uh, scripture actually tells us of an, of an overarching symbolism of what incense oftentimes represents uh, throughout scripture. And that is the prayers of God's people. Um, that overall prayers of God's people are oftentimes described as incense going before the Lord. David again makes the connection for us in Psalm 141. When he's calling out praying, he says, Oh Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The prayer of God's people being counted as incense before God. 
more specifically and directly, we run into in John's vision uh, of the temple room in Revelation. When he sees the throne and he sees the elders around the throne, um, we, we learn that in Revelation chapter 5 that those elders uh, are holding these golden bowls. And inside these bowls, they're full of incense. And the direct connection has told us that in that temple setting, in that throne room, um, the incense again represents the prayers of the saints being offered up as sweet fragrance before the Lord. And again, this makes sense as we look back to what we've already considered about the altar. Just like the altar was set apart with a very specific and powerful purpose, so our prayers are supposed to have a powerful and specific purpose. We can directly relate that. James reminds us of the power of prayer in in 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as is working. The prayer of a righteous person is effective. It has power because it is working. Jesus' own words recorded by John um, says the same thing when he's talking about the power of prayer. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's powerful, powerful notion of prayer, that through prayers, God responds and answers them. That's the power of prayer. Again, this isn't just that we get to ask whatever we want in the equation. It's not that, oh, I would like a new car. Oh, I'd like this. And then God now has to grant us that. That doesn't sound very powerful. That sounds like a genie uh, whose only power is to do what you want. And that's not the equation we get here at all. Um, we got to remember that this is a power that is combined with a purpose. And the purpose is the glory of the Lord. Um, A.W. Tozer in his devotional writes it um, this way. He says, the prayer among evangelical Christians is always in danger of denigrating into a glorified gold rush. That we just make it about what we want and we ask of him and just throw his name on it um, in order to do it. But that's not the powerful prayer. What the powerful prayer we get is in accordance to his will. And again, John writes it this time in his letter, 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything According to his will, he will hear us. The prayer here in its power is connected to the efficiency or effectiveness of God's will being accomplished. What can undo God's will? Nothing. What can undo a powerful prayer? Apparently nothing when it's aligned with his will. Warren Wearsby in his devotional wrote it um, meaningfully enough. I put it on the screen for us to consider. The immediate purpose of prayer is the accomplishing of God's will on earth. The ultimate purpose of prayer is the eternal glory of God. The altar was set apart with purpose and with power, and so shall be our prayers in aligning them with his will. How powerful it is that God can align us to his will through prayer. And similarly, just as the altar is to be burned um, day and night, so the prayer of God's people are supposed to be constant and uninterrupted. We have several of this all across the New Testament. And um, Luke records Jesus' own words of why he talked about the parable of the persistent praying widow. It is so that uh, he told the parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not to lose heart. When should you praise? Always. Always pray. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes in a list of commands, just the simple command, pray without ceasing. Pray without stopping. Or simply Paul to the Romans writes in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. When? Constant in prayer. And it begs the question of do we live lives marked by this constant communication that is open to us and God above, constant in prayer. 
You know, Chris and I on the podcast, we um, were talking with John and Colson, and we were, we were confessing even our own dispositions towards um, forgetting the powerfulness of prayer. Because it's so oftentimes that I'm only reminded of the power of prayer when I've exhausted my own resources towards something. It's when my own, pull my own stuff by the bootstrap, when my own plan, where my own false sense of control starts falling apart, and then I have nothing left, that then I turn to God and remember his power in prayer. That's like showing up to the ball game a little too late. Because we were told that that same powerful prayer exists in the very beginning. It's my mindset to then need to discipline and be um, uh, desperate to the Holy Spirit to remind me of, no, that same power you're desperate for now is the same power that is there and effective then, even when you were still operating under the misnomer that you had this together. No, no, no. Don't wait that long. You're coming to the ball game late. Start with the effectiveness and the power of my prayer in the very beginning. And I think in the comfort of that, the good news is we have one who prays for us one who prays on our behalf, one who serves as a mediator, a go-between, a mediator between a holy God and his broken humanity. And this is what I think the altar of incense ultimately represents with our prayers, is that we, we now have, fulfilled by Christ, God doing the work, we now have a mediator to be able to come to him. It's just as the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard was a typology of Christ's death on our behalf. Now the altar of incense in the holy place is a type of Christ's mediation on our behalf. Him as a go-between because of what he accomplished. And we remember this because we remember where the altar sits in the tabernacle, what purpose it is. When we look back at our illustration again, the altar is the one that is closest to the veil right there. Um, so we got the menorah on the left and we got the showbread on the right. And then closest to the veil is uh, the, the, this altar. And that's what we saw again when we read it in verse six. And you shall put in front of the veil that is above the ark of testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. What a great statement. Not again, not where we go meet with God. God's doing this one. He's handling the work. He's the one where we'll meet with us. And that again, we see as Christ as our mediator. We're able to meet with a God in front of a holy God, standing in his presence without fear, with confidence, because Christ is our powerful mediator on our behalf. The author of Hebrews probably puts this most succinctly because a lot of what Hebrews is is to bring to these Jewish understandings of the tabernacle system, the temple system, and really the high priest uh, and to show anybody who would be Jewish or familiar with those systems how Christ fulfills all those things. That Christ didn't come, as in his own words, to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And a lot of what Hebrews is about that. And this idea of, of Christ constantly being in intercession is found in Hebrews 7. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make an intercession for them. Always lives to make an intercession. Hebrews chapter 9 says it similarly. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are only copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ's intercession on our behalf is a sweet-smelling aroma before God and something he accomplishes and something he offers to us. I think this is why we have hope. We have hope because we get to have a conversation. We have hope because we have a connection to one who knows what's going on. We have hope because Christ is our mediator. Hopelessness would be a world that we have no right communication with God. This is what we deserve. This is what sinners are. Um, what we all know what we are is that what we would deserve is separation from a holy God. Um, 
where we deserve death in response to our sins in front of a holy God. And we deserve to be lost in the plagues of our own unrighteousness before a righteous God. This is what we would deserve. But we don't stand hopeless getting what we deserve because we have hope in Christ as a mediator and what he is able to secure for us. No longer a separation. No longer no voice, but a connection of voice. We can pray with power according to his will. And he is the one who offers salvation to us. This again, this notion of confidence is why the author of Hebrews writes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We get this confidence because of his work.